Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Uh, you're at home? I am. I'm at home. Yeah, what a luxury. It feels like a luxury, kind of. Except when I'm at home, I feel like I'm at the office. It's like my home, I'm like, oh my god, I gotta use this time. I have so much to do. I'm a little bit stressed today with all the stuff I have to get done. I never understand why other artists are busy. Like, now no, let me put it this way: I never understand when my peers say they're busy, and I know their output. <laughs> and I'm like, right? That's not. You're not making that much work. It, it, Should like, I tell you all the things? If, that I if need Damien to do Hurst says he's busy, because but like, yeah, yeah, but. I think you're busy because you commit to a lot of projects that involve a lot of people. That's right. Yeah. So like today I'm building like four websites for other artists. I'm writing two statements. Mm. One of the statements is for a group of other artists. And like, Yeah. I'm, I'm always yeah. in favor of profitable projects because then you can do more and focus on what's important. And then, but you mm-hmm. are always focused on, uh, let, let me put it this way. If you, if you start building these machines, then they start working for you. But you want to work for other people, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I think like it's kind of a good segue into what I wanted to talk about this week, which is, um, you know, I think that life is divided in my philosophy is divided into three parts. Like the first part of life is called is learning. Yeah. And then like the second part of life is mastering what you've learned, like becoming really good at it. Transcending and then I think, it, it becomes just an extension yeah. of you. Exactly. Like, it, and you take it for granted. And then the third part of life, I think, really is teaching or like helping others master. Um, that's like sort of the apprentice. And why, why do you model. want to divide those? Like they could all three happen at the same time, you think? Yeah. I, like, think, they like, are, they, I think they are. Like you're, you're five little... years old, you learn how to tie your shoelaces and your friend has a hard time. You're like, wait, I'll show you. <laughs> I think like, well, the reason I was thinking about it this week is because um, I was at an opening and my graduate advisor was in town. Like, so I went to grad school and this guy, Tom Sherman, he was my advisor during my MFA. He's like, yeah, come to my opening. And he kind of does it uh, in a way to get us all together. It's also a little bit self-promotional, I think. Uh, But he's like in his seventies now, or he just, he's about to, no, he's not 70 yet. He's about to turn 70. My dad just turned 70 yesterday. I was thinking like, he's, he's pretty old to be working at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. And but he made a big impact on me. So no matter what the event is or what he's doing, I'm like I'm going because he, in my, in my opinion, gave so much uh, to the material that I now live the rest of my life on. And uh, so I think you know I just think of him as this um, as this as this person who gives so generously. Like as a teacher, I don't know you've taught a little bit or you've never taught in school formally, no. but. Um, Teachers give so much I, I of their time. I think this is going to be a fun podcast because I, I'm <laughs> against teaching and you love it. And yeah. yeah, maybe it will be fun. It'll be different points of yeah. view. But I, I think teaching takes so much energy. So you know, so many people go to school, become artists, uh, go to grad school, and then they, they think about what's my first job opportunity. And they think a lot of them think teaching to start. Well, and I, the universities, I, of course, take advantage. of I this. grew up with a father who is an art teacher. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell tell me about that. What was well, that he like? It, it's like like any artist coming not coming from independent wealth or n- nobility or being super rich. You have to have an option, and mm-hmm. you're like, well, I'm probably not going to sell enough to make a living. Right. Yeah. And then some people will be a designer, or some people will work in a bookstore, and a lot of people, of course, art teaching. You're with students that are interested in art. You're embedded in art. It's nice. Um. So he studied art teaching. He didn't study art. 
so okay. there's a I little bit of thing. pedagogy and uh, you learn how to teach and you learn what teaching is and you, it's not just art and also I think even the art there was more an emphasis on technique of drawing as opposed to more of a conceptual art school was he teaching in a high school or in a like in he a he started university? in a high school and then he ended up in the same school where he went so he was a He's an art teacher who teaches other people to be art teachers. But that's really rare. And I think it's funny because... But Kristen, yeah, it's, it's part, almost like yeah. it's like meta art teacher. So he would teach life drawing, but also teach them about like, well, this is how you approach a group. This is how you work with group dynamics. This is how you work with how you pair people, how you make the most of them. Like, it, mm-hmm. Yeah, the philosophy of teaching and the, the, the underpinnings. Right. Yeah. But what I saw was that he loves teaching, and I think uh, he was born to teach. He really likes that feeling of sharing knowledge. But it put the art in the background. It's just uh, Mm -hmm. simple mathematics. Teaching takes a lot of time. And so I think I was always aware that if you put a lot of energy into teaching, then that energy doesn't go to your main work. Or it becomes the main work. I mean, not, I say of course, but I think to do a good job at teaching requires um, a tremendous amount of effort. And a lot of teachers will say, yeah, they're, you know, like if they're teaching three, two, three, four courses when they're starting out, that there's barely time to do that well. And they're, you know, just working at getting good at that is, is what most people spend the yeah. first years yeah. teaching doing. And then there's the funny uh, contradiction that you would think you would be a better teacher if you're also practicing as an artist. Because mm-hmm. then you have uh, current knowledge. You can, especially if you're teaching technology, you want to be mm-hmm. in the know of what's going on. Otherwise, yeah, you're, you're like, doing research. Let me teach mm-hmm. you guys about ActionScript and the students. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> and then. But I think a lot of teachers manage to pull that off. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but then they have very little time to do it. But what I'm trying to say is some of the best artists can be the, most, the worst teachers, and some of the mm-hmm. best teachers might not make that much art anymore, but they're just good at teaching. Yeah, like the cliche is like if you go to a great school, there's usually like a celebrity artist there, like maybe Ai Weiwei's teaching or something. Yeah, to get <laughs> and, the students uh, in. And he comes yeah. once a year or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> a friend of mine was in Ai Weiwei's class and he showed up like twice a year, but otherwise he was on Skype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then and he what, just says, all right, guys, love it. Keep going. See ya. Yeah, actually, what he did is interesting, I think, um, with this friend, or this, she's not really a close friend, but she ended up working for him. So in his studio, and I think he, this is a model in architecture that's interesting, too, which is like, often the teachers who are, do have really successful professional practices, are just looking for talent to poach, to work inside their studio. Your school is like, you're paying for a job interview. Yeah. (laughs) You're paying 60,000 a year. Then, but has it ever been any different? Then you have 8% different? interest the rest of your life on that amount to maybe work for a very little for someone famous. Yeah. I mean, I guess in art, it's particularly problematic because the return is so slight for so many people. Yeah. Um, but I guess in architecture, there's actually... People have this misconception that architects make a lot of money. It's actually not the case. Yeah, it's pretty like difficult. Yeah, really long hours. Yeah, it's a very similar economic model in a way in that there are a lot of well, pitching. Well, all these professions are professions that people would even do for free. So, and the demand of the the demand is not as high. I'm I'm talking about the fun architecture. Like who wants to design mm-hmm. this museum? And like a million people would be like, "I'll do it for free." No, I'll pay you to do it. That's right. that's how cool <laughs> the job is. So, and if somebody's like, 
who wants to pick up garbage for free? You're not going to get so many responses. Yeah. And I always, uh, it was funny, my brother's an architect and he's designing like YouTube's headquarters right now, which I think is kind of cool. I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about that, but... Uh, Wait, I, I can scramble that word, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think what's interesting is like, I, I remember the first time I went and visited, like I had a meeting at Apple and I figured this is the wealthiest company in the world. Of course, their offices are going to be beautiful, but it was like the crappiest like office park, like worst conference room that Samsung TV was broken. <laughs> it's like they totally underinvest in their. This was like two years ago. Okay. Yeah. And uh, of course, they've got this new spaceship camp- campus that they're building now. It's about to open that they spent a fortune on. But like the tech companies, like these wealthy companies, weren't spending very much on architecture. We're a little bit off track, except that, you know, yeah, architects have it as bad. And in schools, architect uh, teachers kind of like really, it's more about recruiting. And I don't know if that, I don't think that's necessarily the case in art schools, except for this like IYWA example. But what my experience with teachers has been is like, I've had a few good mentors and they changed my life as an artist mm-hmm. and as a professional, frankly, because they like left certain like key lessons with me or they argued with me or they like challenged me to think differently. I don't know if you've had a similar experience. My, my best art teacher was the one in high school and he was just really good at uh, uh, showing the, the narrative of art history, showing mm. like how things go from one to the other. Mm-hmm. And he was very methodical he would always go on vacation in spain and france and photograph all the churches and all the details and mm-hmm. then talk about it very vividly and i really uh, that was really uh, that set the 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 groundworks of uh, seeing art on a longer timeline and seeing the changes throughout time uh, yeah he just sounds like a good teacher though right? yeah 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 and uh, i never um, I think in, in some other countries, in some other places, kids are already aware at 18 of like, I have to go to that art school or that art school. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was very aware of that. I was like, okay, I'll just go there. It's fine. So it wasn't right. a very prestigious school. And I liked the teachers, but they didn't uh, change my thinking so much or they tried. Mm-hmm. Um and what really helped me the most in art school was the technical lessons. So learning about silk screening or learning <laughs> After Effects and all those things. And here's my thing in my experience is that art is you're developing your personality. You're developing mm-hmm. an attitude. And I just feel like it's... So you don't think the school had any impact on your personality? No, no. That's so funny because I have the exact opposite opinion. But it's like, it's like, it, like it, to me, it's the same as, as I always reference stand-up comedy. But like, you mm-hmm. learn stand-up comedy by looking at other comedians. But like, imagine there's a school for comedy. I think there are schools for comedy. There are. There's like a yeah, the, but I don't think um, any good comedian went there. No, that's not well. If it's it depends on how you think about a school, like um, like different comedy clubs or yeah or even comedy no i'm groups, talking about like a, i'm talking City. about an accredited uh, institution oh, with <laughs> with the admins the and comedy teachers. academy yeah and like oh yes i've been uh, i, I, but what's that place I went in to new yale york for the, comedy there's a place in new york the fireman's brigade place or whatever isn't that a kind of like a school for comedy that's really successful i don't know it, 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 are we talking strictly about art fine art teaching because i think Teaching design and teaching architecture, I completely understand mm-hmm. why that exists. But I wanted to go back to something you said, because you learn more from the technical, and that's the part I disagree with, which is like, all of the technical lessons I had in school are now obsolete, almost. Um, no, I'm, I'm not saying technical in the sense of uh, 
learning CSS, more in the sense of learning the fundamentals of animation. Okay, if, if a ball bounces, yeah. it squeezes and it does this, that, that kind of technical. And That's theory. Oh, no, but what I mean is more, I would have discussions with, with teachers and saying like, why is it important to paint Mickey Mouse or to paint the Venus de Milo and like those kind of discussions and mm-hmm. and I, I, I remember you. I was I, I'm always against everything right and I want to be uh, the opposite of everything you're you're, you're working on your grumpy old man yeah the rest but of I your remember we, we were working and the teachers took me a, a little bit aside and because we were critiquing each other and I thought every all every other student was completely stupid it was like mm-hmm. and he took me aside he's like do you really believe that or were you trying to it's like no and I'm well what do you like and I'm like well, I like Warhol and Dali. And he said, okay, Warhol I can accept, but Dali, no, that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it, it's also subjective to, so then for an old teacher to have this authoritative position and say, mm-hmm. this is good taste, that is bad taste. Mm-hmm. Look at Joseph Boyce, he's an important artist. Dali, yeah. no, that's all wrong. And then what ends up happening uh, is, of course, there's this, in America specifically, there's been a lot of writing about this idea of the MFA aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. Like where all the work coming out of those schools looks like schoolwork, yeah. like, but a specific kind well, of I, high I, level. I, every so many years, I, I have all my old drawings and stuff at my parents, and mm-hmm. then I'll go and throw out some of it so there's more space. And then you can see exactly where I did what the teacher was asking me to do, because my general uh, attitude is to make things kind of geometric and simple and rigid. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah. like, no, you need to break out of your personality and, and, and start tearing <laughs> the paper and just go free and right. wild. And I could see exactly where they were like clapping. Oh, you, you really made a breakthrough. It's, it's great. And it's like, that's not me. So that's maybe what I'm trying to say. They're trying to get mm-hmm. you out of your shell. Mm-hmm. But my shell is what I am. And Basically, that might just be because of the history, the history of university and liberal arts kind of learning was giving you the access to the broadest number of perspectives. Because the assumption going into school is you've had one perspective. It's your, it, you've had one teacher too, probably your parents, and your, you know, your experience. And so they're like, okay, your parents aren't here anymore. Here's some other ideas. And I remember I had teachers that would shock mm-hmm. me. It's like, look, here's a woman drinking her own breast milk. Isn't that shocking? Or like, <laughs> here's Vito Conchi masturbating under yeah, 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 the gallery. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, my God. Like, every time I came into class, it's like, they're going to blow my mind again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, I, that... I, maybe I my know, perspective blew- was also that I grew up with uh, artists as parents. So I, I yeah. was exposed to a lot of stuff already. And then I didn't feel the need of like, oh, wow, you blew my... Or maybe I'm just arrogant. No, no. I mean, I grew up with designers as parents. And so, and like, basic stuff about, like, uh, how to lay out a page or typography, color. But even art as well. They probably took you to museums. Yeah, I, I was... Yeah, and just like you, it's funny you said that. I, I don't know how many of our listeners have this, too. I had a superiority complex. Like, my first year in college was, like, the most confident I've ever felt in my life. Or maybe it was the second year. Like, when I finally fit in and I knew what was going on, I was like, these students, they suck. Look what I can do. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, like, obviously, it's so stupid and arrogant. But that's, like, a young... I don't know if it's just a young male thing or if young women are also the same way. But uh, I made terrible work as a result. And, you know, it took... I remember the first art class I took, actually, is where I had the, this yeah, lesson. Yeah, but what I'm trying to say is... it. It's not about good or bad or being good or bad, but it's also about defending your individuality. Because mm. it, when you're saying... But what if you're naive? Like, no, you but if you, you were talking about this MFA aesthetic. So let's say you're 
a teenager and you're really into unicorns or Spider-Man, and then mm -hmm. all the art teachers are going to tell you, no, no, that's not cool. You should listen to, li listen to some theory and you should read some Derrida. And then mm -hmm. you just become like the rest and you lose your individuality. I guess there, so. The, let's talk about this though, because the the teacher that I was about to talk about, she isn't my favorite, but she taught me one of the best lessons. So my the first art class I was in was a class that I the only class I could get into because I was coming from outside of art. I had decided that like art you wasn't came for me. From Winamp world. I was like, yeah, I was designer and a sociologist, and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna be I'm an academic, and also like you know, art's not practical. You guys and not are helping noobs. anyone. Yeah, it's funny to actually have come full circle. Like I was like, art's not helping anyone. It's useless. I, but but then I remember there's this moment where I was like in second year or third year of college, and I was like, I was wrong. I need to have art. Like I just craved it in a way, mm -hmm. and so I went. I tried to enroll back in art school in this part of the school that was art based studio practice. And I could only get into one class, and it was a woman in art class, uh, stop, taught by Susan Shell, I remember. And she's like, I met with her. She's like, I'm like, can I please get into this class? I just want to take any art class. Your art class is fine. And she's like, uh, yeah, sure. She, she, was, she didn't really get me, uh, or I didn't really understand. I was just like a young boy. And um, anyway, I got into the class, and it was all women, and it was a very political art class. And of course, like, you know, uh, talking about women in art means talking about men in art. And so I was often uh, sort of, I was made very painfully aware of the problem problems around masculinity in the art world. Anyway, it gave me, whether, whether or not you agree with that those problems exist, it gave me an awareness of my identity within my artistic practice that I had never considered. And so mm -hmm. she taught me this lesson about context. And that, so she was, it was an installation art class as well that I ended up taking with her. Af Actually, that was after I took an installation car class with her after, and it was like, identity is everything. I mean, context is everything. That includes identity. That includes the site specificity of the like place where you're making the installation. So if it's in a church, you got the whole history of Catholicism to deal with, or all religion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's in the basement, then you got to deal with like, what was what was this basement used for before? Anyway, so she was the first person to say to me, "It's not just about what you make; it's where you make it, and yeah, you know, I, who I you are when that. you make it." Yeah. I know, but this, I mean. I'm the way but I am exactly, because of that. That's it, exactly the type of teacher where I'd be like, oh, please shut up and just let me do what I want to do. Yeah, but I, I was like, wow, this is really exciting because I was into sociology and how people make decisions and things like this. So I think, I mean, if you had that teacher, it wouldn't have been successful for no. you. But for me, it was like reinforcing something that I was like... But now that I, we're I talking know, about I really, it, I, I really like this Bauhaus model where they think things happen in a material, so you have to get mm -hmm. very familiar with that material and, and then the material becomes an extension of you. Um, so that's that's well, what I yeah. that's what I mean with the that I enjoyed the technical classes the most because they're like, this is what this machine can do, mm -hmm. and then it would be like, okay, I can push my personality through this material and th then through that material and then see yeah. which material fits me. But I think you have a very strong sense of identity. But a lot of students if you've taught, don't have as strong an identity as you do. And so what a teacher is doing but a lot of times... that's the weird trying thing. To that the, everybody, the, the idea of, of hierarchically ranking personalities, it's like everybody has, has an identity. There's no way you don't have an identity. Yeah, that's true. No, I mean, they're just not sure of it. So I think like it's interesting because when you're talking about how a teacher is like, working really hard to change you or break you through, I, I was thinking about my life as a manager and managing teams and getting performance out of teams. It's the the number one rule they teach you is never never try and correct the mistakes. Yeah. Try and highlight the strengths and reinforce the strengths. Yeah. 
And the mistakes will disappear or aren't important, really. Because if you just spend all of 90% of your time telling a person they're stupid or worthless <laughs> and that if only they could not be themselves, you're absolutely right. They feel bad about themselves. They're unmotivated. Yeah. But if you can find something in them that they're excited about yeah. and reinforce that. But, but what I'm trying to say is, and this, this MFA aesthetic is, is very dangerous, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think... But the Bauhaus had an aesthetic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, mid-century it, modernism. I, I think at any point, I guess you can't escape a common thought. But I think um, it's so deeply embedded in in uh, in everything. In I'm talking about museums and biennials. There's there's this thing when they um, when they start new galleries or a new art fair in a new region in the world that didn't have it before. Mm-hmm. And then they always say, "Oh, is is it a good is it a good fair?" And with good, that implies there's mm. this this general agreement on what is good art. And uh, oh yes, it's it's good. It's one of us. And it's this homogenization. And the schools are part of that. Is and mm-hmm. it's this high culture McDonald's. And it's it's very hard to explain or to pinpoint because it has different faces and it has different sides and it it has different directions, kind of. But I think if you look at it in the lens a hundred years later, you're like, whoa, everybody was making the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, there's all there's a And that's the like danger kind of to a, me of, of, of teaching. That there's this invisible hand that is homogenizing everything and and it's these subtle things where if you want to airbrush unicorns, you can do it, but you have to say that you are doing it with a wink. But if you mm-hmm. really, really just love doing anime, you, you can't go to an MFA type of school because people are like, you're not critical. And yeah, it's the, kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, because I, I'm trying to make, uh, I'm like leaning away from work that I know you like that I make, but toward this idea of like making work where, um, as examples, like I'm starting companies with other artists and things like that. And it's like, it's less and less like artwork. And at what point do I escape velocity and I'm no longer an artist? I'm just like mm-hmm. a some sort of like a venture capitalist or a social or teach. Yeah. Like Kristen, when she was in her MFA, she was like, I hate these people, uh, like painters. So she switched into like a kind of more of a critical theory, media theory program Mm -hmm. at the Slade. And then, so she went out of a traditional kind of MFA painting environment, which is probably the quintessential, like everyone's doing some kind of some, some, they're just riffing off some other painter, right? There's very little innovation that happens there. And then, she, but the first thing she started doing was performing as a teacher. Um, so she started doing performances in persona as a teacher. Like and her I was husband. Like, Dude. Yeah, and I was like, well, don't you just like teaching? <laughs> she's <laughs> like, she's like, you know what? You're right. I hate, I hate the art world and these artists, and I do like teaching. And so she, I was like, why don't you just do become a teacher? And she's like, I know, why not? And so she enrolled in a in a master's in that, teaching. That hatred of the, that hatred of the art world. A big part of that is, of course. You're trying to find a a, a little nook for yourself Niche. that you can survive, mm-hmm. and and if you feel threatened, you start hating it. But then knowing some people who work in fashion, if you know how bitchy that world is, the art oh world is God. so sweet. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's very sweet. The, the 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 fashion world is so bitchy. It's like I do the, think the I currency like of of the fashion world is bitchiness. Like the more horrible you feel. Entering that store, the more intimidated yeah. you are, the better they do. So just everything is designed to make you feel like shit. When you're in school, though, there's that like there is a little bit of that cattiness where it's like that was my idea, like someone like mm-hmm. you know stomping on your turf. And then, and I think among painters especially, it's like 
That's, yeah, it's yeah, a really yeah. bitchy. But I, I think part I know of why I, I didn't feel that was because I immediately, I think in the second year, I grabbed onto the internet thing and nobody was there. So I, I, there was no overlap of, of like, curve. hey, you're using the same cyan paint or the, the same shade of cadmium red as I did in the last work. Right? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe we're dumbing down painting. But um, yeah, I had a similar thing where... And I think I still do. I, like as soon as I feel like someone else is doing what I'm doing, that's why I don't do videos as much anymore. It's like I, there's like thousands of people on mm-hmm. YouTube doing better work than I was doing. I'm like, all right, I got to do something different. I got to <laughs> move on. Like I, but I started getting that hunch. Like wh- at my peak, I was like, this is not going to last. I got to get out of this thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, uh, because in five years, I'm not going to exist. But, right? And so you taught for a while at NYU. I taught for a semester at NYU. Yeah, yeah. And I, I and came to visit to to do a talk about my work, and uh, I saw your students, and I saw the dynamic. And it, yeah, it was great. Yeah. So they, I, they all knew your work, so it was like a celebrity visit too. Well, I love doing talks, and I, from uh, when I was in art school, those were also some of the key moments when outside speakers would come. Like I, and I didn't even feel like I needed personal conversation with them. It wasn't that I needed them to look at my work. It was just great to see. I think that's very helpful when you're younger to see how people work because it seems you see the finished work, you see mm-hmm. you see a huge interactive installation that costs a billion and you think like I can never do that. But then you find out, well, I started with a Wii and then I put two Wii's together mm-hmm. in my garage and then I put it on YouTube and different people responded so I made a little version in the community center and then yeah. and you see all the steps and that's very empowering I think to to see the possibilities. Yeah, because you open up the black box, and I, and it was funny because you know you start you start we started this by you saying oh, I'm not really into teaching, da, da, da. but I kind of think of this podcast as that um, as a form of mentorship or yeah, teaching. yeah maybe what I, I really have a problem with is is sitting down with students that make work that I I just don't connect with, mm-hmm. I've, so sometimes I'm invited to do a talk, and then there's this thing called studio visits where. Yeah, we've uh, talked about that in a previous yeah. podcast, but yeah, but, so talk about it again. There's a group of 10 students, you do a talk, and afterwards you go to each student's corner of the space, or they actually have a physical studio, mm-hmm. and they show you the project they're working on, and they want you to respond. And so I love, I love it, and I know you hate it. <laughs> well, uh, the basic problem for me is that I have a problem with hierarchy and me being in this position of telling you what I think. Mm. Like you're stroking your chin. You've just spent like five minutes with the work. Hmm. Yeah. Have you looked at such yeah. and such artists? And then artists? A, a lot of work is just very far from my world. So mm-hmm. I just don't like it. But that doesn't mean it's good or bad work. It's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. And what's my opinion? So it it's this uncomfortable thing where it's like, well, I really don't care about this work. And then I have to tell you how to make it better or how to think about it. Uh, mm-hmm. I usually just give the the artist an opportunity to tell me how they'd like to spend the time. And sometimes they're like, well, I don't really need any feedback. I'm like, okay, well, let's go have a beer or something. Like, let's go, <laughs> let's just get to know one another socially. Or I had, But there's so something the, the next- very powerful being around people that are excited about what they're doing and th- that energy. So that's a good thing of school. Yeah, but I think so. I because I I think mentorship is more than just like a download, and maybe like you know with the internet, this is an interesting way to take this conversation. And you know, the teachers that had an impact on me actually weren't the ones that gave me the most amount of information about how to do this or how to do that, but the ones that let me into their world. And so that then after that Susan teacher, I had this the the teacher that made left the biggest impact on me. This guy Colin Campbell, who I became, I became his assistant. He's he's now gone. He's he died while I was his assistant. But I he remember did such the, a bad job. 
I remember the first, he was the first person to like, I wasn't doing a good job. I was doing a bad job, but he like, I was in his, one of his classes and he like stopped me in the hallway and I can still remember this spot in front of a staircase. And he was like, Jeremy, you know, what you're doing is really important. <laughs> you know, you're really talented and, and your perspective is just so unique. The world needs to hear more about this. And I knew, like, I, I didn't think in, at all that this was bullshit, right? Yeah. In retrospect, it was a little bit, right? I mean, it was a lot. He was lying to me. But by doing that, and then every class would start with, like, he'd open a bottle of wine, which I don't think is legal anymore. But, like, he, he brought everyone in as a friend. And this guy was just, like, incredible. His work was comedic. It was actually, I just basically make his work. That's my career now. Mm-hmm. Where he he had several persona that, like, lampooned the art world. And, like, he did it in video. And he had, like, 10 or 15 different women that he would play uh, in drag. And they're kind of ridiculous videos. Like, they're... They don't, they're not really the academic video that you'd expect. And I think he was just, I don't know, his personality was so magnetic that you were just like, everyone wanted to be around him. And it was more of a social club. But there's a a tricky thing that I always found very suspicious. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of teachers who thrive on being the center of attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. they get into school because they... To become a teacher, you have to be working on something. You can't just mm-hmm. do nothing. But then they get into this position where they have a tenure position. They can't be fired. They're very comfortable. They do less and less of their own work. And more and more, they just enjoy this position of authority. And I'm just very suspicious of that. I don't know. This guy had sacrificed a lot to start this program. And it was like, he. so he started the whole program and like had scraped mm-hmm. together a way to make it work. And it was really a passion project. He was always kind of finding you know the political way to get more money for the school and i don't know it, it shouldn't have existed but he he had this ideal for what an art school could be and uh it was in an academic institution like our version of like a columbia like an ivy league school and he was like starting this like kind of crappy scrappy little art program with no equipment and i don't know he was just a very generous person like anyway i wanted to get to this point which is like he and then my advisor had this philosophy, like the guy I was talking about at the beginning, Tom Sherman, they had this philosophy of like also inviting you into their home. And then I've had a few other professors that did that too. And so like it started with a bottle of wine, but then it was like, have dinner at our house, meet our family, like Mm -hmm. become a part of our lives. And this is a very powerful concept to me because this idea of the separation between professional life and like, or school and home and identity and professional identity and normal identity. Anyway, all just disappeared for yeah, me. Yeah, well, I, I definitely first... agree with it. As an artist, you, you can't separate work and life. Yeah, so they taught me this lesson. That there is no difference, that this is all one thing. And we'd like you to be a part of this community. And that felt really, I don't know, it was like, maybe it's cultish, and, right? And it's like a church or something. were you more invited than others or did he invite everybody equally? No, I was more invited than others because I was a pro- I was like a like a top student, and I think that that's where you know you're right. There's like some interesting tension. Well, there, there's um, this weird thing about teaching. Someone told me is that the the students that you want to spend the most time with need you the least. But that's actually the opposite of what you're supposed to do in management. I was talking to someone about this. You're supposed to invest only in your top performing uh, reports because. Otherwise, you they get upset that you're not giving them attention. And the worst people that you're on your team just, you know, they get this lesson that if you're bad, you get more attention, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so so I, are managers I, as a teacher, better paid teachers? 
Well, I think it's an interesting thing kind of for me to think about because that's the way I think uh, the the learn, master, teach thing that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, that's the same model that I use in my day job at FreshBooks to manage my team. And so, and I've noticed that every mature senior designer really does want to mentor others. Mm. Not everyone. Some of them are like, fuck that. I just want to do like technology or pure design or like they want to go deep on something. But there's a certain person that really does want to like work with others or help others get better. Yeah. And, and I think the, it's just a personality difference. Do you see yourself teaching full-time at some point? Did you like it that I think, much? Uh, I think what you said earlier is really interesting, which is like I think maybe the best thing would be to be doing all three things all the time as you get older because that yeah. kind of like a virtuous cycle in some yeah. way. Well, that's, I think I that's one of the things that's very appealing about teaching is uh, you're constantly updating what you're teaching, so you're also learning yourself and you're mm-hmm. learning from your students. So that's really a great aspect. But I did want to get to this, you know, some technology because the podcast really is like, that's what makes it, I think, a little bit different that we think about how technology affects some of this stuff. And then I wanted to ask yeah, you... Yeah, what about texting during class? Well, this was a problem when I was teaching, actually. Yeah, all the laptops open and stuff. And ugh, I don't even want to get into that. But <laughs> but there's all the, a lot of schools have tried to move online and, and make learning just something that you do alone at home uh, or that you collaborate with people uh, telepresently on. And I wondered... Whether like this idea of wine in the classroom does a lot of online classes himself. Well, yeah, like, but Bill Gates is not my my best experiences though were with people who invited me into their homes, and so it's the opposite. Like, it's so clinical to get on the internet. Yes and no, because you can also become friends with people online and then Mm -hmm. later meet them physically. But how would they do that in an online course? I feel like there's no online course right now where it's like sign up to be like live streaming from the the artist studio or something. Sort of a model where it's people our age or even younger together in a class but they also talk about the class and then they start to make friends and and they will make Mm -hmm. social gatherings in real life or away from keyboard right Right. and which is how we got started as artists after school you and i so the 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 benefit of online is that you can meet people with niche interests yeah, and I guess you could connect through outside the academic context. I haven't taken very many online courses. I've attended like, you know, full day webinar type events and things like that. But the thing I always miss is like, I'd like to walk up to the teacher afterward and like have a conversation with them. Yeah. And then I would like for them to say, why don't we get coffee? And anyway, none of this stuff is in like the like what we consider value in education. I guess my point, the the good point I'm trying to make is just that a lot of what I consider education is this like informal exchange. Like it's the relationships you build with a mentor. And I guess I want to get back to mentorship and outside of schools, whether you've had a mentor, because it's a very common thing when people get to be a senior level, like even in my company, I start look and, and there's no one around. You're now like directing others or you've been so no successful. There's no teacher anymore. There's no teacher anymore. And then and then there's this common thing. I get, sometimes get asked to do it by others. Like, could you be my mentor? Or I've gone out and said, like, I'd, I'd like to find a mentor. I've spoken to CEOs who have sort of coached, mentored people. That That's right. My can. CEO has several mentors. I have a, I have an available mentor to me that I can call at any time. But that's the hard thing about art, I think, is that, and that's what I was trying to say with the deep down inside, it's, it's just you. And there's no mm-hmm. good or bad. So you try to constantly think, like, is this work better than this one? But really what it's about is it's about how you think about it and your decision. And so this mm-hmm. idea, yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no way of ever finding out if you're doing well. 
and that's yeah, a good thing and a bad you thing. ask for you can ask for advice i mean i think yeah we but all it do doesn't make a lot artists. of sense i just think at least it's true i never listen to your advice about what to make i'm always like yeah Raphael thinks this i think yeah that doesn't it's make any just sense a point of view but it, it, <laughs> yeah. um it's really about your the world wants you to decide mm-hmm yeah, I think every time you question who you are, I don't know, I don't think it's a bad thing. No, but it, no, it's great, but it's you, a weird you, thing because you're, mm-hmm. I think from early on, you're taught by your parents, everything is like, wash the dishes and then you get a compliment. And mm-hmm. So who are your mentors right now? Do you have any? No, not at all. No, I, I think for a while, Miltus Manetas was very influential because I started on the internet, but didn't really consider it having a shot at being considered art and he's mm-hmm. like no this is art and the, the the domain name is a uh, is an object and that's how we should see it and people mm-hmm. have to take it seriously but um no it it's definitely difficult when but i think art is just a very it, in essence you meet a lot of people through art but the art itself is just a very individualistic completely mm-hmm. it's almost like an if, to me it's a has a very nihilistic individualistic quality mm-hmm. of just like your your vision and in the void and and so it sounds kind of cold or, or depressing yeah. but the, it, it's also wonderful it's like it's completely free of of any uh practical or any school or any any mm-hmm. it should be completely free of any established norms so it, it's that's why you, it can't be judged it's funny that you say that because like a lot of PhD students think this way, uh, have this problem actually. So when you progress from a master's to a PhD, master's is very supportive, tons of mentorship. And then in a PhD, you're usually given in like a yeah, kind well, of an advisor. It's, it's the but same in, in mathematics yeah. or philosophy where you start, mm-hmm. you start venturing into such a specialized into the unknown, yeah, that no one can help you. In the unknowns, especially, yeah. right? Like if you're really doing your job, you're doing something that no one's ever done before. Yeah. And therefore, anyone's input is just going to be like, either Arbitrary. they're going to, they're going to, well, they could tell you, well, it actually has been done before. Maybe that's why in studio visits, you're always like, have you looked at the work of so-and-so? Yeah. <laughs> it's why, just why? a polite, polite way of saying like, uh, derivative or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe you're right. Like as you get to a sort more senior position and you're in the unknown, there's less and less help. There's I've a often beautiful heard, like, book by Stanislav Lem, and I can't remember which book it is, but there's a part of astronaut training where they have to go into complete sensory deprivation, but in the extreme where you don't even feel like you have a body anymore. And mm. they throw you in outer space, and with some trick, it just feels like your your consciousness is floating in a black void, but oh, you dear. can't feel your body anymore. And most people freak out, but they have to learn to accept that because mm-hmm. there's a part of... It's like extreme space travel through yeah. wormholes, and, and you have to... Your psyche has to be able to deal with that. So it has to deal with absolutely no sensory input for a month mm-hmm. or something. I was just, uh, it reminds me that it yesterday was just I was... It was so beautifully written. I, I'm just trying to... But no, yeah. no, no. You reminded me of something that's terribly written. <laughs> but like I, last yesterday, I was just working in TED Talks. I watched a TED Talk and then my YouTube stream just started streaming. Like I watched Elon Musk's TED Talk, mm-hmm. which is terrible and like indulgent, but like it led to all these other talks by him, like just streaming in the background. You know how YouTube just yeah. automatically yeah, plays yeah. the next thing. And then this, this he, I realized he gives the same interview actually over and over again, like hundreds of times a year. 
And some one one quote that he uses all the time over and over again is about being an entrepreneur and like taking risks and stuff yeah. and like you know venturing into because the unknown. Because he's the hero of every entrepreneur. They're like, I want to be. Yeah, people are. Yeah, people are always like, "What? Well, how do you do it? I mean, you're doing things that no one even imagined possible. Yeah. Your imagination is spectacular, <laughs> yeah. Musk. And he's also, like, oh, you yes. imagine things that will never ever happen. Yeah, that's right. Well, and then well, he does make some of the things real. So then uh, he is like, you know. I, I never tell people entrepreneurial being an entrepreneur is fun. What it, it's 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 miserable. It's a painful, painful existence, and no one should ever have to do it. It's a lonely, lonely place. It's like screaming into the void while chewing glass. <laughs> <laughs> he also said this thing that I thought was very funny. Is like if you're watching motivational videos or reading motivational books, you're probably not going to make it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but if like you need that, he said, if you need motivation, it's already too late. It does remind me, it's one of the th- pieces of advice I usually give younger artists, which is like, no one's asking you to do this. You know, like, the world's not really set up. I mean, they're going to ask you to do a show here or there, but most of the time you're going to think what you're doing is useless, non-productive. Society could do better off without you. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and there's very few people that are going to be like, keep going. You know, yeah, or very few people are there is a th- the thing of camaraderie that's very powerful. So there's but only if you make it to a certain stage. Yeah, Otherwise, no, no, people just it, it's at every down. level. But there's a, there's a thing of camaraderie where um, so the, the oh, es- like, what I'm talking about with this this sensory deprivation and the void and uh, mm-hmm. your thoughts in a void. That's the that's the art itself. That's the the, the essence of like where do I have to go? But mm-hmm. when you tell people, oh, I'm stuck with this thing, I don't know, and they're the, often there's very practical advice where people are like, oh, I'm working with this foundry. They're really good at this and this. Or I'm working yeah. with this person. He's helping me a lot. Or, and that kind of semi-practical, it's not exactly practical, but it's like things yeah. can be motivational because you see it's possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's just practical, pragmatic kind of tactical we have this saying in uh, business, like, is it tactical or strategic? Mm. Like, tactical is just responding to a problem in yeah. the moment. But strategic is like, you know, having a future outlook for how what might be that is not today that would put you at an advantage. Mm-mm. And I think a lot of us think very tactically about learning. Uh, so it's like, what could I do today to be better off to get my job done faster, to get this done cheaper? Da, da, da. That's tactics. But strategy is really hard to do well because it requires this thing, you know, and a people even faith. in strategy, a leap of faith, exactly trusting in the unknown. And you're usually using what are called weak signals to inform a strategy. And a lot of CEOs are charged with doing this. And then they're also when they're wrong, like everyone like just, just totally shits on them because yeah i mean it's crazy with the, the decisions the at that level like i read this book uh, the innovator's dilemma yeah uh, walter isaacson no clay Isn't christensen it? oh clay oh christensen. sorry innovator's dilemma i was yeah. thinking uh yeah sorry clayton christensen yeah yeah but what was interesting is that sometimes you can see the writing on the wall the future is is headed there it's usually you go from mainframe to medium-sized computer to personal computer, and you're yeah. making the medium-sized computer, and you know that the PC is coming. Your competitor already has it shipping. You know it's mm-hmm. coming, but you also know that if you start making PCs, you're just accelerating your own demise, and right. you're putting money into something that the margins are lower. It's going to eat away your core business. You're going to go, and it's just like these shit if you do, <laughs> shit if you don't decisions. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm glad I'm not a CEO. 
There's a philosophy now in business, and there's a book. Ugh, I, I didn't do my research for the podcast, but I'll get into the show notes. As usual. There's a, I mean, I didn't know we'd end up in this position. That's what's great about the show. I never know where we're going to end up. But um, it's a book about uh, that started the self-disruption model. So for people who aren't aware, mm. what's popular in business these days is that you invest half of your company in sustaining your existing strategy, like you know, making PCs and, and knowing and, and, that people... And investing e- e- in efficiency. Even, yeah, so the, exactly. the problem optimizing with the efficiency. Christensen addresses is that people get too obsessed with optimizing. That's right. Yeah. And so optimization in one direction will allow you to only go fast in that one direction. But meanwhile, if there's a whole other, you know, if that direction's dying or falling off or there's less interest in it in the future, you're optimized for that one place and you're going to you're going to be stuck. So the model these days, though, is uh, to like split your attention. So half of your work should be optimizing and the other half should be disrupting your existing model. And this has become like a very common thing for companies to do. You hear about it all the time. Very few do it well. But the idea is you should be able to replace your existing revenue within a period of time with brand new revenue. But it's, it's interesting that uh, entrepreneurship and business is so dominant in our psyche now that I'll start looking reading these type of books and then thinking how i apply that to my own art practice right and that's what i was saying earlier too. but the, like, there's these uh, there's these cliches like taking risk is always great right uh, don't get stuck in one thing uh reinvent yourself all the time it's okay to fail all these cliches mm-hmm. and i think a lot of art happens that is great where people bite into a very narrow idea and just chew on that their whole life And I think a lot of art that Mm -hmm. is made that way is really awesome. So I don't think this idea of like, well, we're a phone company, but we can also make hair dryers. (laughs) I don't think artists should think the same way. Right. Maybe that's why like we have like J-Lo putting out a perfume line and also like being American Idol star. They're diversifying. Yeah. There's a band like the Ramones and they're like, well, this is our song structure and that's what we're going to do for 40 years. And I really appreciate that. Well, when you talk to venture capitalists, uh, I don't know why I'm saying this, but, like, but one of the things they, they really appreciate in, a, in an entrepreneur is an existing failure, yes. So like, if you failed once before, the likelihood that you succeed the next time is much higher. But they, after that, they expect one thing, is, and that's for you to be stubborn. So for you to like mm. not want to change, to commit to a direction and to iterate on that one thing, but not to give up too quickly. Because if you're changing directions all the time, they look at that as just as bad. You're not learning from your failure. Yeah. But if you have a vision and you've already learned, then go just go for it. I think my CEO has this great expression that I like to use now in my life, which is like, I'm a 10-year overnight success. <laughs> but like... <laughs> Most people, like, success looks like it happens overnight, but really it takes... Yeah, but I think success, that word shouldn't even exist in art. It's very dangerous. Yeah, because it's a very subjective term. Yeah, because success? then you start yeah. measuring things. And that's not, the whole point is that you just have this inner voice that uh, is, is constantly... There's all these things that are bothering the inner voice. So there's the, mm-hmm. there's the financial success or critical success, which is just another word for fitting in, which mm-hmm. is, you shouldn't fit in. Yeah. So and you no, just have right. this that's very quiet branding. inner voice, and there's this, all these distractions. And I think it's all about removing. And Miltus Manet just told me this story a long time ago. I didn't know if he came up with it or somebody else, but he said that art is like you're trying to find an elephant, but it's a very dark room, and you have a flashlight. And the more you move the flashlight around, the mm. more the elephant jumps around. So the more if you're moving the light around all the time, you're never going to find the elephant. 
And then what you have to do is you just have to hold your flashlight in one direction and wait and wait and wait for the elephant to come by. But if the elephant doesn't show up and a dog shows up, you have to accept the dog. <laughs> that, what is this elephant? Elephants don't even move around that much. <laughs> so I never exactly knew what that story meant, but I like it a lot. <laughs> Yeah, definitely sticks out in memory. I mean, there's the famous elephant uh, story of like, you know, the three blind men who tell you the different story about what an elephant is. Like one is holding the trunk and they're like, oh, this is a snake. And others holding the legs like it's a tree and whatever. The other's holding the tail or something. It's a, yeah. It's a broom. I don't know. Anyway, that's a funny expression. Uh, yeah. So we're. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I do think it's interesting that we have this. Uh, um, I think much more than in the 70s. There's a the blending of business into culture and just seeing mm. everything as a success that can be measured. And uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's a unique I mean, thing that's... of our time of, of the quantified self and everything being put into numbers. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, like constant alert, a friend of ours did that project where Again. he like, uh, he, yeah, he's, well, a, he's, he's every a, episode. <laughs> <laughs> he's a favorite topic of conversation. Uh, where he bought Instagram followers for a bunch of artists. Did he buy them for you? Yeah. Yeah, so he like amped up their their number he, of Instagram he, followers. Yeah, he had. chose. So just to explain a little bit, on social media, a lot of people look at how many followers you have, and you can buy those followers. So people companies will make fake accounts that have two or three posts, and then they can use those accounts to follow whoever they want. And so you'll pay one cent or a, a tenth of a cent per user, and you just buy a package of like, okay, I want a hundred thousand followers for a hundred bucks, mm-hmm. kind of like that, and. His project was a little bit about equalizing famous people and not so famous people and galleries and curators and just plateau everybody at 100,000 followers. So nobody's special anymore. Yeah. And also this idea, obviously, the critical point of view is that like we equate followers now with some kind of value, like some kind of capital value, some social capital or also financial value. Like, oh, and we do everything for the like. Anyway, um, it's not worth doing it for the like. it's similar to before, like who your friends are. So if you know that mm-hmm. you're in a group show with a certain set of people, then people trust it more. Mm-hmm. Right. If uh, well, I I don't know. One of the things I was interested in in uh, with you having all these followers now, though, do you find uh, that people treated you differently when they realized you had twenty thousand follow? Like not when you realized, but with your fake follower count versus your old follower count? Or something I don't like know. So the, the way it started, I. Um, I think I had 20,000 followers naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is a lot. On, That's on, more than most On Instagram, people have. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that was just kind of how that built up organically. I didn't promote anything or buy followers or anything. And then mm-hmm. Instagram uh, will choose a promoted artist every now and then. So when you install the app, it'll say, Are you into sports? And it suggests a few people. Are you into art? It suggests a few people. Right. And they promoted me for a while. So I went from 20 to maybe 40,000. Mm-hmm. But most of those followers don't really know you that well, so there's not much engagement. And, right. and then Constant bought it up to 100,000. And those mm-hmm. are really empty followers. They don't contribute to... They're not even human beings. They're like, some of them yeah. are robots. And then Instagram did a cleanup. They uh, kicked out a lot of fake followers, so it went down to 70, and now it's like at 90 or something. But mm-hmm. my engagement is very low. Like, I have... I know other people who have 10,000 followers and when they post a picture, they get a thousand likes and I'll get a mm-hmm. hundred likes with a hundred thousand followers. So 
who knows what it all means. To, that, to tie that back to this week's good point, though, I was thinking about how your community potentially becomes this other, like, meta mentor right yeah like, a little bit like you'll, you'll post things and you're like oh i didn't realize people like that work so much i i didn't even think it was that important mm-hmm. and so you're like when you're out in the void or the emptiness and this is what a lot of companies do as well they start to rely more and more on who their existing fan base is or their existing customer yeah. base to help them understand what to I do i mean next. there's definitely something with sales also that uh, if you do an exhibition and you see that a certain group of works is doing well then that gives you the courage to maybe make a bigger version of it that you already wanted to do, but you're like, okay, mm-hmm. there's there's a chance that it's such a big investment. And the, do you see what I'm doing? I'm like challenging, like whether how because you have this this vision of you know your your uh, speculation is that artist is this like totally independent like you know just pursue your vision stubbornly at all costs. Yeah. But at the same, there are these other inputs. There so a mentor are, is one yeah. kind of. But, you know, of course, like your collectors are another input and now you have a community input. Yeah. That, that becomes more important. No, no, my and it's all noise position. in a sense. But they're looking up to you, your community, in a lot of cases, right? The reason they're following you, your, your quote unquote most engaged fan base is because they're like, well, I want to learn from this person. I, I really yeah, admire well, what I, they're I, doing. I look up to a lot of other people and I, I mm-hmm. find that I f- usually I, I like following people on social media that I personally know. Mm hmm. I, I Do you mean, follow? Uh, I, are there any celebrities that you follow? I don't think so much. Maybe a few artists because I like seeing what they're doing in their studio or something. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of music I love, but then their social media is not that interesting. Because it's too promotional. Yeah, or like just because you make good songs doesn't mean you have a cool Instagram account. Mm-hmm. Those things are not directly related. Like I, I love David Lynch's films, but his Twitter account is really boring. He just says. Uh, <laughs> yeah so who cares yeah it shouldn't be it should be really mysterious <laughs> <laughs> i guess anyway i i think i wanted just to talk about this because um i'm at that stage where i'm mentoring a lot of other people but i'm looking at my mentors for what they help me accomplish and you know hanging out with this like with tom sherman who i didn't mention the whole reason was that this this my graduate advisor 70 you know turning 70 soon still trying to do shows like you know, out there promoting himself. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm like, why? You don't even need to do but it. That's it reminds me of by Ste- example. That's very inspiring. Yeah, that's true. It's called modeling behavior. Yeah, modeling good behavior. But you mod- don't even have example. to be personally connected to the person. Just seeing that that's possible, like knowing that there's architects who are still working at age 100, when everyone yeah. tells you you should retire at 65, you're like, no, you don't have to retire at sixty-five. Here's an example. That's a really that's a really good point, I think, actually. And like Louise Bourgeois for a long time was like that for me. I was like, oh yeah, I could do this the rest of my life yeah. until I turn ninety. And yeah. she, so leading by example is a, a form of mentorship. I think that now I rely and on and a most. form of hope. Like a lot of times, you'll see people who were just struggling until they were ninety, and so you're like, well, they still had fun doing it, and then uh, mm-hmm. might as well. Yeah, I think uh, the person that stands out to me the most in that regard would be uh, the former New York Times uh, sartorialist photographer. Um, what's his name? The uh, the older guy that used to bike around. Oh, the fashion photographer William something. No, no, not William. Why am I blanking? The guy on his with name? the blue jacket on the bike. <laughs> How can I forget this? Hang on, you can hear me typing here. <laughs> Fashion bicycle. I think if I type bicycle, I think everyone knows that's listening. He, he but died I, recently. Like yeah, he year. died recently. That didn't kill the dream. I know. I'm going to die too. Oh yeah, there he is. Um, Bill Cunningham. Oh yeah. And just like I, I don't know, seeing you that guy around. 
I saw the documentary and then I talked to people who like saw him around New York all the time and they, they would always say like, yeah, he, he really was this figure for so many years and an inspiration that, you know, that he would keep going, this stubbornness to just do the same thing for a whole lifetime. He also really just, was strict in, in separating money from his himself. So he didn't want mm-hmm. to be, he, he didn't want any money involvement in anything. He lived in a, in a closet basically filled with storage of his uh, yeah. negatives. I think he yeah. lived somewhere for free. Like they just forgot about the broom closet and he lived there. That's but I think that's even more powerful in the fashion industry, right? Because it's this like elitist kind of space, but it was clearly just passion for him. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I guess that's, yeah, that's my I good think point. that's a form of teaching where you just see documentaries or interviews or exhibitions and, and you realize that it's possible. Well, I think in his case, teaching just by just being passionate about what you do. I know it sounds cheesy or you know inspirational, but, but like just being passionate for your whole life yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is a way to mentor others and to sometimes invite those people into your life. Um, teaching people, I don't know. Yeah, is that the opposite where you can go to a school to to lose hope? <laughs> <laughs> the school of but grumpy I, losers. That's where I disagree because I've just had a few teachers who really did teach me that lesson who said like, again, there's no separation between art and life. There's only a passion. And if you have this passion, guess what? We're going to invite you in. You're going to have coffee with us, tea, dinner. We're going to go drinking together and it's going to be a great life. And well, if you th- like this life, you can have it. why I was disillusioned with teaching because I, I was uh, in a school in a small city. Mm-hmm. So a lot of teachers were mostly teaching for money, not because they loved doing it, and they were kind of grumpy. And then I would go to bigger cities and show my work, and people would be really excited, but then I would show it in, in my art school, and I would tell them very excited, like, oh, I, I made this website on the Internet, and 10,000 people saw it. And they're like, well, what is <laughs> it? Is it porn or something? <laughs> right, Yeah, right. and just like a, a bummer all the time. And I was like, I've got to get out of here. I don't know. Yeah, actually, the first thing that this teacher, old teacher of mine said when I saw him was like, well, it was maybe like two sentences. And he's like, you know, I showed your videos, like all the greatest hits to this year's class. Mm. And it's they're still killing it. Even the <laughs> old ones way back when it was like they, they, were, they were in rapture. And I was like, yeah. I was like, that's so nice to and hear. Th- Thanks for sharing. That. There's something about uh, if if you as an artist, if you found something and you, you feel confident about it and people respond to it. I think you're a better teacher by going very hard with your own work than actually sitting down with a class. It's it's just a distribution of numbers. Like, if you can make a bigger installation or a more powerful work, and it can reach a million people instead of you teaching eight people mm. in a classroom. I mean, I think, but you're, what you're saying, though, is like, if you pursue your passion, others will follow. And if you're a teacher and you compromise on your passion, potentially you're not as impactful. Yeah, but, but there's there's certain people who... Um, are just better teachers than artists and there's definitely a lot of great artists who are horrible teachers so mm-hmm. it, it's, it's really case by case okay yeah choose your path <laughs> we have no point yeah there's no one right way of course no. anyway the way I'm mentoring is by uh, you know just doing what I love and then helping people who want to do the same thing basically yeah but Picasso is always a good example he was uh, in his studio every day and he made a lot of works and I think the world is better off for him having done that and if he had been teaching three days a week he would mm-hmm. not have been able to go as deep in his research right did he and he had assistance maybe to prepare the canvas but it wasn't an assistant in the sense that uh, here's the puppet let's draw 15 of them you you draw them mm. yeah i don't know yeah see my my good my my feeling like for this week is really that a lot of teaching is invisible a lot of mentorship is invisible 
it's not something that is that you can put your finger on it's spending time yeah but there is also the actual institutional teaching that comes with insurance and a pension and stability and students coming in every year and like that, that's sort of that's still a the most value even when exists. i at nyu again my most the most valuable time i spent with students was often like before the class and after the class <laughs> And it was like, yeah, but then if you hadn't had the class, those moments wouldn't have been meaningful. Wouldn't exist. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Okay, well, I mean, we're almost out of time. Um, yeah, thank you for listening, uh, everybody, again. And we, and we have a field recording. We had no advertisement this week, so apparently people don't want free advertising. We thought that was going to be a hot product, <laughs> right? We thought, oh, they're, they're no, going to be knocking our door down. and then we get more. That's right. We haven't put value on it. And so they're like, oh, it's useless. Who yeah. wants it? Yeah. No, <laughs> I, maybe I think don't want people the just love hearing us talk about our thoughts. So that's why they don't want to intervene. Well, someone interviewed me about the podcast for like a podcast product that they were working on this week. And they asked me whether uh, we were interested in making money from the podcast. And I said that wasn't why we started it, but it wouldn't, we wouldn't say no. And then they're like, well, how would you do that? And I mentioned, well, you could have ads or you could do a crowdfunding campaign or like you could have a store on your website. I think people should just give us money and not exp- ask anything well, in return. No, but, but don't you think we should give something in return? No, I, that was I, my point. I was I, like, we would never just take money. So we never take money away I think people should just say, <laughs> especially rich people listening, should just say, yeah, I'm tired of having all this money. I want to put this burden on them. And well, then we'll try yeah, for I mean, a while. We'll carry the do ring. We ha- <laughs> I don't know if we have any rich listeners. <laughs> uh, yeah, wealthy. Hey, wealthy listeners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this we'll, message we'll carry the you. ring for a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, let, let, us, let us help you by you helping <laughs> Let us set you free. <laughs> set you free. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, it would give us more time to, to spend doing this. And what we'd really like to do, though, I think, is host an event some, at some point and invite everyone out um, conference. in different cities. Yeah, well, I wouldn't call it a conference. I'd call it more of a party. I think it would be fun yeah, for us to... Let's do it in Costa Rica. Hey, yeah, but it would have to be accessible if, if for our Costa Rican fans. But I'm sure we have enough people in New York that we could get them all together for a dinner and all go out together. Uh, yeah, that what's would be really the fun, fun in that? I mean, let's go to Costa Rica. All right, and then we'd get them all onto a private jet funded by our wealthy, <laughs> our wealthy no, patrons. No, it's not so expensive. And then we go to Costa Rica. I love Costa Rica. I've been there once before. It's one of my favorite I places I haven't been yet, so I'm looking for an excuse. Okay. Yeah. Well, if there's anyone in Costa Rica that wants to host... Because whenever, <laughs> whenever things are work-related, at least it's tax-deductible. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, this, this whole thing could be tax-deductible. Anyway, um, let's think about that. <laughs> we do have a field recording this week that I sort of... Uh, recorded on the sly uh, last week while I was um, going on a like kind of a, a weekend excursion with Kristen, my partner. We went to a park uh, in the city, and the, but it was very, it was full of nature. There were like frogs, like I don't know what, it, ribbiting, mm-hmm. <laughs> birds tweeting, uh, people buzzing, planes going overhead. So it's like a mix of nature and city that I kind of liked at this time in the year where things are springing back to life, and so. If you've fallen asleep at this point of the podcast, think about springing back to life and listening to the sounds of spring uh, at the Scarborough Bluffs in Toronto. Enjoy. See you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.